The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's podcast guest is Seb Fork a historian at Cambridge University and a BBC New Generation thinker. Seb is the author of a new book, The Light Ages, which highlights the ingenuity of science in the Middle Ages. He spoke to BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. Seb, in the introduction to your book, you make the point that medieval science is frequently disparaged nowadays. Why do you think that that is and do you feel that's unfair? Um, well, it has a long history. The, the disparagement of the medieval goes all the way back to the Renaissance uh, and particularly um, the Enlightenment uh, when uh, medieval was seen as um, a dark age. So essentially um, in the Renaissance, uh, scholars were involved in trying to recover the ancient learning of uh, of ancient Greece and Rome. And... Um, they saw everything that had come between uh, the times of uh, ancient Greece and Rome and their own day as being essentially irrelevant. Um, and that picture continued um, with um, the idea of the Renaissance as a historiographical category right up to the present day. Um, so uh, the Middle Ages has always been kind of disparaged as this bit in the middle, this mediocre period. Um, and, you know, to some extent... Uh, you can you can say that some of the things that people thought in the Middle Ages were wrong, but that doesn't make them less interesting. Um, and uh, in my book, I wanted to do two things, really. I wanted to show how the ideas of the Middle Ages um, weren't as infertile and as stagnant and as dark as is often portrayed, that actually the Middle Ages contributed a huge amount to the development of modern science, including um, uh, the study, the recovery and the study of ancient texts, uh, the involvement of Islamic texts in Western European scholarship, um, and 
um, the foundation of the universities and other institutions. So I wanted to do that. I wanted to show that the Middle Ages were a fertile period. But I also wanted to show people who are interested in the Middle Ages, people who maybe have read about kings and have read about battles, that there's much more to the Middle Ages than that. That among their interest in the Middle Ages, they should also be interested in the intellectual culture of the Middle Ages. Intellectual culture sounds kind of dry and dull, but I wanted to show in the book that it's not like that at all. And I suppose it's worth asking, did such a thing as science exist in the Middle Ages and what would they have called it then? That's a really good question. Um, So, of course, there's nothing like our modern science. Uh, Modern science is a distinct discipline. It's practised by professionals called scientists in purpose-designed spaces, laboratories, observatories, uh, and it follows very clearly well-defined rules. But the word science, of course, comes from the Latin root scientia, uh, and a scientia in the Middle Ages uh, was any kind of field of knowledge, um, which could include theology, anything that was a kind of uh, a discipline uh, of, of serious study. Um, So the idea of science as being uh, the study of nature in a way that is marked out from other kinds of intellectual endeavour is a modern category. Um, But that doesn't mean that people weren't investigating, weren't studying nature. They were doing it in other ways. Um, Some historians have said that the ways that medieval people did um, what we now call science uh, are so different that we shouldn't use the word science at all. And we should um, use some of the categories that they use, um, either just talking about the distinct sciences like astronomy, mathematics, um, uh, geometry, or, or, or that kind of thing, or kind of grouping them together as sometimes happened um, under the heading natural philosophy. And the idea there is that, that natural philosophy in the Middle Ages, in, in the Christian West, in the Latin West, um, was um, a devotional activity. It was a way of getting closer to the mind of God. By understanding the world around you, you understood creation um, and uh, the analogy went, just like if you look at a clock, you can try and understand the kind of mind that invented that clock by looking at the clock. So by looking at the world, you can kind of understand the mind of its inventor, i.e. God. So for Christians, understanding nature, doing science was um, a devotional activity. It was something that uh, would um, help them understand God, something that would essentially make them better Christians. Um So the fact that that's quite different um, has led some historians to uh, say, well, we shouldn't talk about this as being science. But actually, um, uh, it's it's still similar. They're still looking at the same nature. They're still studying the same stars above. Uh, They're still using mathematics. Um, They're still reading texts. Uh, Aristotle, for example, um, if you think about the modern sciences as we understand them, many of them... um, you know, from from um, physics uh, right the way through to metaphysics um, and beyond, uh, get their titles from books by Aristotle. So the same things that were being studied in the Middle Ages have a huge influence on modern science. And nowadays, on that on that point, we tend to have a very clear divide between religion and science, and it seems that they shouldn't be allowed to mix. Do you think the fact that they so often were intermingled in the Middle Ages in any way devalues that era of scientific study? Um, no, I think um, often there's there's this idea that there's been a conflict between religion and science. Um, 
and that uh, somehow the church, as this kind of all-powerful body, got in the way of science. And I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. Um, first of all, um, the church, uh, insofar as it was kind of controlling anything, um, had a huge um, role to play in supporting science, in founding universities. Uh, the, the, there's a very popular image or, or, or metaphor um, which uh, scholars in the Middle Ages liked to use, which was um, that there were two books in which one could understand God. You could read about God in scripture, of course, but you could also read about God in the book of nature. Um, and and um, uh, Hugh of St. Victor, who was a teacher in the 12th century cathedral schools, um, has this extended explanation uh, of the world as being like a book written by the finger of God. Um, and someone who's not studied science uh, was um, like an illiterate person who can only look at the pictures, but someone who had studied and had thought about uh, scientific matters um, was uh, fully able to read this book written by God and could understand, and it would ultimately make you a better Christian. So I think the point is that the church uh, fully supported the study of science, um, and uh, science was done by religious people, by monks, uh, in universities, uh, all the way through the Middle Ages. So I think to sort of try and uh, boil it down to some conflict um, is is misleading. Now, of course, you know, there were instances where um, there, particularly where um, in the universities where science was mainly studied in the arts faculty, confusingly for us with our modern categories, uh, the arts faculty uh, included uh, mathematical and scientific arts. Um, the If the arts masters uh, strayed into what looked too much like theology, then the theology masters um, would essentially tell them to get off their patch. And occasionally there would therefore be conflicts where teachers were teaching things that uh, they shouldn't be. Uh, and in, in those cases, then sometimes the church did get involved. Um, but it's very uh, sporadic. Uh, and the the kinds of um, sanctions that are sometimes put in place don't have wide effect. You know, there might be a ban on certain books in Paris, but it has no effect in Oxford or so on. Um, so uh, to say that the church is kind of interfering in science, I think, is 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 not true at all. And you mentioned there the fact that monks were some of the leading practitioners of scientific work at this time. Why is it that they were the people who were leading the way in this subject? Uh, well, mainly because they were the most educated. Uh, you know, they had access uh, to um, teaching. They became literate. They became literate, of course, primarily for religious purposes to read scripture. Um, but that didn't stop them reading other things as well. Um, and they um, had access to books. And many of the best libraries were uh, monastic libraries. Um, actually, in the early universities, um, monks are not uh, the first people um, to attend university after they're founded um, in the uh, 12th century and going into the 13th century. And of course, the reason for that is because uh, monks uh, tended to want to keep themselves apart from the world. They didn't want to be involved in uh, urban life in the in the cities. Um, well, I mean, different orders treat things differently. But um, generally speaking, uh, the universities were uh, seen as uh, perhaps... Um, 
something to be wary of. Uh, but what happens is after the foundation of the two main orders of uh, preachers and um, uh, the mendicant orders, the friars, uh, the Dominicans and the Franciscans, they take up university uh, opportunity very readily and very eagerly. Um, and uh, after the monks kind of see that they're losing some of their best recruits to um, uh, the Franciscans and the Dominicans because essentially young, uh, intellectually voracious men were um, uh, keen to study in, in the universities uh, and join the Franciscans and the Dominicans. The Dominicans in particular were founded to preach against heresy. Uh, and in order to preach against heresy, they needed to be educated. And so they attended university. Uh, and that included being educated in science, because if you want to essentially debunk some of the um, some of what we might call the fake news of heresy, um, then you need to be educated in 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 the truth. Um, and so the Dominicans were very keen to study science. So were the Franciscans uh, and the monks kind of um, jump on that bandwagon a little bit later on. Um, but uh, everybody who studied in university was in some form of holy orders, even if it's a sort of very basic level. Um, and many of them, many of the monks who study at university spend maybe just a term or two studying and then go back to their monasteries. So there's a kind of real traffic between uh, monasteries and universities. Uh, and, and all of it is um, uh, under the auspices of the church, usually, you know, in different universities, there are different rules, but uh, often under the protection of local bishops um, uh, or, or more centralised authority as well. So these universities are kind of uh, seen as church institutions. And nowadays, um, science thrives really through knowledge uh, exchanges throughout the world. To what extent were people in the medieval era able to share their discoveries and their research with their peers in other countries? Uh, really important point. Thank you. Uh, yes, science was was hugely international in the Middle Ages. Uh, I, of course, one of the things, one of the developments that um, often is said to have brought in modern science was was the development of printing uh, in the fifteenth century um, in in Western Europe, uh, uh, printing with movable type, which allowed um, ancient texts, first of all, and then new texts to be um, disseminated with great ease so that people could read more books than they'd ever read before because books became cheaper and so on. So that's a post-medieval development and, and that's one of the things um, that's often said to mark out the Middle Ages as being um, pre-modern, if you like. Um, but uh, there was still wide circulation of texts and there was wide circulation of scholars, of intellectuals. For example, at the University of Paris, you have um, Roger Bacon uh, from England and Albertus Magnus, uh, Albert of Lauingen from Germany and Thomas Aquinas uh, from um uh, Italy, uh, Aquinas and uh, Albertus, uh, Dominicans, uh, Roger Bacon, a Franciscan, all of them in Paris in the 13th century, roughly around the same time. So you get these universities as being hives of international scholars. And um, actually, uh, they were all able to speak the same language because Latin was the international language of scholarship. Uh, so uh, they were able to communicate, they were able to share texts and share ideas, and texts really circulated quite widely. So um, there was a huge movement of uh, scholarship in the Middle Ages, um, and also a huge desire to translate texts from other languages. So in the 12th century, um, 
the 12th century is the era of a great translation movement, particularly in Spain, um, where uh, Latin Christians were able to encounter uh, texts um, from the Islamic world, not just by Muslims, but also uh, Jews as well, and, and even Christians, but written in Arabic, texts that were um, written by Muslims, but also texts from ancient Greece that had been um, stored and translated and studied and developed and commented on by Muslim scholars, particularly in um, Baghdad and around there in the ninth century. Um, and uh, and not to forget also uh, science that's being done in Byzantium, um, in, in Constantinople, that finds its way um, into Europe as well. So there's a kind of a voracious desire to um, pick up on all this scholarship and to study it and to develop it and to uh, incorporate it into their into their studies. Um, so absolutely not parochial. I mean, often I I kind of get the impression that it's the Renaissance when all this learning from Greece and Rome and also the Middle East actually really gets rediscovered and improved upon. But are you saying we need to take that story earlier? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's it's almost 100 years now since um, Charles Homer Haskins wrote um, his book, The Renaissance of the 12th Century. And that was an attempt to try and kind of push back some of the developments that we associate with the 15th and 16th century Renaissance back into earlier centuries. And I think you can kind of play a game of sort of trying to push the Renaissance back uh, and then you say, well, what about the Carolingian Renaissance? And you know, under the, in the court of Charlemagne in the early ninth century, um, and uh, and what about the the great developments uh, of that period? And I think ultimately you sort of end up playing this slightly pointless game of of saying, well, what about pushing it a bit earlier? And what you're really up against is a is a classic historical debate about what changes and what stays the same. Um, should we be focused on kind of continuity or should we be focused on change? Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do, wouldn't want to say that nothing happens in um, the traditional Renaissance. Um, certainly, you know, you look at the art of the period and you can see that in the art of the period, there's a tremendous change in the way that people think uh, about, think visually, um, and that has knock-on effects in science. Uh, and, of course, um, as I've already said, the impact of printing is enormous in making texts available to a wide readership. Uh, but um, I suppose the one thing that people often forget about the Renaissance is that certainly in the early part, it was all about recovering texts from ancient scholars. So it was not this idea, oh, we're going to do all this new stuff. It was the same medieval principle that... Um, the ancient wisdom, the wisdom of ancient Greece and Rome, was uh, the, the 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 summit of knowledge, the summit of cultural achievement, and we have to try and recover as much of that as possible. And that was exactly the same principle that motivated the translation movement in the 12th century. Um, this idea that we have to recover the wisdom of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, uh, and um, and study of scholars, you know, in medicine, it's Galen, of course, in, in much of philosophy uh, and, and science as we understand it, it's Aristotle, um, and in astronomy, uh, you know, which is the kind of peak mathematical science, it's Ptolemy. Uh, and those um, are the ancient scholars that are really highly prized and continue to be highly prized into the Renaissance. What changes in the Renaissance is this access to texts, uh, 
means that more people can get involved, more people can study. Um, there's more debate going on. Um, there's uh, new texts um, become accessible um, and people start to notice the contradictions in those texts, um, which, of course, were being noticed before. But, you know, the more texts you have access to, the more you're able to to work with that. Uh, and then using um, their access to those those texts, they um, start to develop them and start to challenge them and start to uh, come up with uh, alternative ideas. But all of that is being done in the Middle Ages, just on a smaller scale. So are there any particularly important scientific breakthroughs that take place in the Middle Ages? Yes, some of the main ones are the development of instruments. I mean, I've got an astrolabe here, um, but also uh, the mechanical clock uh, goes back to uh, the Middle Ages, particularly the kind of complex astronomy uh, that underpins that uh, and understandings of um, uh, understandings of, of instruments uh, and the way that instruments can be used to to show and uh, understand the motions of of the heavens. Um, Developments in mathematics and physics, um, uh, the the what are sometimes called the Oxford calculators um, in early 14th century Oxford uh, developed um, techniques for um, measuring things that had previously not been thought quantifiable, things like temperature and speed, um, which people hadn't previously thought of as being uh, being quantifiable ideas of acceleration. Uh, and that feeds in directly to the developments, more famous developments of people like Galileo, um, understanding uh, the physics of falling objects. Um, the universities as institutions are tremendously important, um, of course, today, uh, but um, but have have you know changing importance throughout history, um, and and those are a medieval foundation as well. Um, understandings of optics and lenses, um, uh, the first eyeglasses uh, are are invented in the Middle Ages, um, but a wider understanding of rays, the geometry of light. Um, is uh, really an achievement of uh, Muslim scholars to begin with, uh, men like Al-Kindi and Ibn al-Haytham, um, but picked up very eagerly by um, scholars in uh, Western Europe, uh, including Roger Bacon, I've already mentioned, John Peckham, who became Archbishop of Canterbury, um, scholars um, like uh, Dietrich of Freiburg in Germany. So, um, you know, names that are not particularly household names, but they absolutely make an important contribution. Um, but as I've already said, it's it's not just about the contribution that medieval scholars make to modern science. It's also about understanding how they fit in to medieval culture and how medieval culture was a deeply scientific one. And in you know the works of Chaucer, for example, you've got science, you've got astronomy, uh, you've got precise learning. Uh, Chaucer wrote an instruction manual for an astrolabe. So it's uh, it's about how science was deeply embedded in medieval culture and medieval art and literature. And earlier in that answer, you mentioned astronomy, which comes out in the book quite a lot as it seems to be an area that medieval people are really, really fascinated by. Why do you think it was so important to them? Um, yeah, the, the the basic understanding, uh, which goes back to the kind of cosmology of Plato and Aristotle, is that um, everything that happens down here on Earth is uh, a microcosm of the macrocosm, what happens up in the heavens. Uh, and so um, everything that that uh, under happens in, in the human body, the weather, um, 
is kind of reflected up in the heavens. So it's important to understand that um, in the medieval mind, everything is connected. Uh, so your health is dependent on the motions of the planets. So it has a real uh, practical impact on people. But also it's simply um, uh, a subject that people are able to observe and predict and make models for in um a rational, quantifiable way. So astronomy is the first mathematical science. It's the first science uh, that um, uh, uses arithmetic and geometry, the kind of basics of mathematics, to create models, to make predictions, uh, and to um, refine and enhance those models using observations, using instruments um, and calculations. Uh, and so, uh, you know, one of the reasons I included astronomy is... Um, because it is the most scientific science of the Middle Ages, but also because it feeds into everything else. Astronomy uses um, basic mathematical sciences like arithmetic and geometry, as I've already said, but it also feeds into applications uh, ranging from optics to um, medicine, weather forecasting, uh, you name it. So um, it, it's kind of at the centre of everything in many ways. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. One of the problems that I identified with disparaging medieval scientific knowledge is it's a way of making ourselves feel good. It's a way of saying we're not as stupid as them. Um, and that's, that's always been the case. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And now, also in the medieval period, astrology and astronomy are connected. And clearly today we see astrology as being very different. So how much are things that we would now consider to be superstitious or magic at this point being blended in with science? I think the first important thing to say is that uh, there was debate in the Middle Ages. Uh, often one of the stereotypes is that everybody uh, believed the same thing and just believed what they were told to believe, but there's actually a huge amount of debate in the Middle Ages about these precise issues. Um, astronomy and astrology are quite difficult to separate as as a historian because um, the two words are often used interchangeably, but that doesn't mean that the two sciences were interchangeable. Um, Ptolemy, um, the, the Greek astronomer um, on whose work a huge amount of um, 
uh, of these sciences are based distinguishes very clearly between the sort of foundational science, astronomy, which measures uh, the motions of the stars, um, and astrology, which understands the effects of those motions uh, down here on Earth and tries to make predictions uh, and um, and even perhaps um, harness their power um, uh, using using that knowledge. Um, and so astronomy and astrology were very closely bound together. Um, and uh, I suppose the basic point is that you don't really find anybody in the Middle Ages uh, denying uh, the understanding that what happens up in the heavens affects things down here on Earth. Um, but uh, there are two um, kind of problems that are raised with that. Number one is, um, what is the extent of the effects of the heavens? So uh, pretty much everybody says, well, the sun obviously heats the earth, the moon clearly affects the tides, it's logical that the motions of the planets are also going to have some effect down here on earth, the challenge is just to measure it and uh, ultimately to be able to predict it. Um, so, uh, can you predict those things? Well, the theologians have a problem with this, of course, because they say, uh, if everything is predictable, um, that impacts human free will. And, you know, we understand, uh, that humans have free will. And if everything is determined by the motions of the heavens, uh, then that limits human free will. Um, so the theologians kind of start from the position that, um, the heavens affect nature, affect the weather, but they don't affect human behaviour. But then people come along and say, well, what about human health? Uh, because humans, man is made of matter, humans are a mix of the elements. Uh, if you go into medieval medicine, the four humours that were really at the centre of medieval medicine, um, blood, phlegm, yellow bile and black bile, map precisely onto the four elements of the earth, earth, air, fire and water, and... Um, and those in turn reflect the heavens. So it seems natural that human health is going to be affected astrologically. But then you say, well, if I get angry when I'm hungry, um, that's my health affecting my emotions, my elemental stuff in my body affecting the way that I behave. So there's kind of shades of grey there. Um, and so there's a lot of debate around how much um, astrology really affects human behaviour. So that's the first kind of issue that's raised with astrology. The second issue that's raised with astrology is how predictable is it really? Uh, because the heavens are so complicated and the more that we understand the motions of the planets and the way that the different cycles of the planets interact, the harder it is to see any kind of predictability. Because yes, you can predict the cycles of the planets. You can say the sun comes round every 365 and a quarter days and the, the moon comes round every 29 and a half days and uh, Saturn comes round every 30 years. But by the time you've laid all of those different cycles on top of each other, it starts to look very unpredictable. And so a lot of... Um, uh, astronomers say, actually, when it comes down to it, um, we're not sure that we can really predict this at all. Um, so astrology is really important because it gives a motivator to measurement. It says if we really want to understand this, if we really want to understand how the heavens affect the earth, we need to do careful measurement. We need to understand these models. Um, but the two can exist separately. And you there, during that answer, discussed a little bit about medieval medicine, which is an area that always fascinates our readers and listeners. So from doing the research for this book, what's your take on how effective it was? I think one of the important rules um, about studying medieval medicine is um, that uh, we 
um, shouldn't dismiss something that we now see uh, as ineffective. Um, the the question is re- really where the people at the time uh, experienced medieval medicine as being useful and effective to them. Um, you know, fundamentally, the simple answer is uh, medicine as uh, as a technology. Um, has decidedly mixed results um, really right up to, you know, the early 20th century. Um, And uh, there's no getting away from that. Um, But the ideas um, that uh, medieval scholars came up with, um, the measures that they took, including, you know, public health measures during the plague, which are very comparable um, to today's social distancing rules, um, are really interesting. Uh, and what's you know particularly interesting, I think, is the way that um, medieval people understood health in different ways. So often it said, you know, when the plague came along, um, when it hit Europe in um, the middle of the 14th century, and it's important to understand the plague has a very long history, um, not just in Europe, of course, but across Asia and in Africa as well. Um, when the plague um, hit Europe uh, in in the 14th century. Um, it's often said, oh, medieval people just thought they were being punished by God, um, which is nonsense. Uh, you know, there's really complex understandings of health and disease, um, which layer on this kind of astrological understanding. Yes, um, a sense that God was intervening, um, but also environmental causes. Uh, medieval people understood about um, uh, about the fact that, that your medicine could be the cause of your disease, you know, that the medicines could have side effects uh, and uh, doctors themselves could perhaps prescribe medicines which had negative effects uh, on, on humans. You know, they understood about lead poisoning uh, and yet here we are still um, uh, suffering the effects of um, leaded petrol, which only came out of our cars, you know, a couple of decades ago. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there was certainly some, some complex understanding and there was... Um, you know, a subtle knowledge, which I think is often um, dismissed. Even if medieval people were going to cathedrals and pilgrimage sites to pray for God to cure them, while they were waiting for that miracle cure, they were given medical treatment um, using available herbs and drugs uh, by uh, the monks and priests who were at those cathedrals. So, uh, you know, it's not it's not one thing or the other. Um, and there's a huge literature of study of the effects of different drugs um, and um, a huge trade in uh, herbal remedies uh, across Europe uh, and of course very intense study. Um, So there's a huge amount to learn from medieval medicine. One of the things I think that we can learn from medieval medicine, which is something that modern medicine uh, has forgotten and perhaps is only now coming back to, is this idea of the body as a whole. Um, You know, medicine, if I can put it quite crudely, um, progressed by looking closer and closer, by constantly looking at at smaller fractions of the human body. Uh, Medieval medicine tried to to view the human body as a whole and saw that what was wrong with any one part of the body um, 
uh, you know, to simplify slightly, uh, was caused uh, by a, a holistic problem, an imbalance in the human body. Whereas modern medicine, um, as it progressed, said, let's look at individual organs, let's look at individual cells, let's look, you know, at the interactions, the chemistry, and even the physics um, of uh, the human body. Um, but in doing so, um, we lost sight, I think, of some of that holistic view, uh, some of the um, interaction between physical health and mental health, uh, for example. And they had that holistic view in the Middle Ages, and particularly, I think, an understanding that physical health and mental health were inextricably intertwined um, and were affected um, by the environment um, is something that uh, perhaps uh, doctors now are, are coming back to belatedly. Um, so I think there is still something we can learn from the Middle Ages. Uh, but of course, you ask any historian of medicine uh, who has just told you uh, that we shouldn't dismiss the medicine of the Middle Ages, when would you rather be alive? And of course, they'll all say now. Uh, they're not going to say, I want to go back and be treated by a 14th century doctor. So um, I think we need to, to, to be a bit um, balanced in our point of view. Now, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the central figure in your book, who is John Westwick, who is through the book is our guide to medieval knowledge. What was it about him that drew you to his story and why is he particularly helpful in navigating this subject? John Westwick is a is a, a brilliant, fascinating character. Um, he has this incredible adventurous life. So he's a monk. Um, he uh, may have gone and studied at Oxford. He came from a fairly ordinary background. Uh, he at some point got exiled, we think, up to Tynemouth Priory on the cliffs overlooking the North Sea, where monks were often sent as a kind of punishment or to prove themselves uh, to this inhospitable environment uh, where you're being battered by the winds and the waves and attacked by invaders from Scotland. Um, and then he goes off on crusade to Flanders um, during the Bishop's Crusade of 1383 and uh, the whole army gets dysentery and then we find him later in London where he's inventing an astronomical instrument. So he has this tumultuous life, this fascinating, um, adventurous life which uh, somehow um, uh, um, subverts our perceptions of monks as constantly in one place just doing one thing. Um, but at the same time, he's entirely ordinary. And that was a really important point for me. I didn't want my history of medieval science to be a parade of great men. Too many histories of science are parades of, of great individuals, usually men, um, and holding them up as being... Uh, unique figures ahead of their time, uh, you name it. There are so many cliches about how science progresses. And that's not how science works. It's not how science has ever worked. Science is a deeply collaborative endeavour, a deeply creative endeavour, um, and one that has involved people from across the world um, whenever, wherever science has been practised. So I wanted to tell the story of medieval science through an ordinary person. And that's particularly important for the Middle Ages because um, so much of uh, scientific um, study was humble. It was anonymous. It was about um, making incremental advances um, on the work of earlier scholars. Um, and so I wanted to show that humility uh, by uh, writing it as a history of uh, an unknown figure. Um, but also, uh, John Westwick was really useful to me because um, he's not 
super advanced and we can kind of see him working out stuff as he goes along. Uh, and what I wanted to do in this book was uh, let people learn the science for themselves. There are too many books that just tell people how amazing something was. Uh, but I really wanted people to see for themselves. So I wanted people to learn how to multiply Roman numerals. I wanted people to learn how to count to 10,000 on their fingers. I wanted people uh, to learn how to use an astrolabe or to learn how to cure dysentery. And I explain all those things in the book so that they can see for themselves um, the creativity and the ingenuity of medieval science. And John Westwick was a way for me to hang all those things together, uh, to, to tell it as a biography, to keep readers interested in the story, um, but also to learn as he learned, um, to feel uh, somehow perhaps um, equal to um, the, the person that they were um, learning from. Um, so in a way, um, John Westwick could be anyone. Um, he's kind of an everyman figure. You know, he has this tremendously interesting, adventurous life. And part of the book is me trying to reconstruct his life from quite scrappy pieces of evidence. Uh, and I've had to, you know, go right, right back into the archives to try and work out where he was at different times. Um, but um, it's, uh, it's also uh, about kind of bringing people into um, the, the, the medieval experience of learning science. And we, when you talk there about how most of the scientists at this point were men, were there any women at all practising science in the Middle Ages? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think part of the problem that we have is an evidential problem um, in that uh, men are able to study in universities, women aren't, men are generally able to practise as physicians um, and uh, admitted um, uh, to um, qualifications in the later Middle Ages, which women uh, generally, although not um, universally, aren't. Um, so there's more evidence for men um, producing science. But that doesn't mean that, that women aren't doing it. And of course, often when we have an anonymous text, it's been assumed in the past that it's a man because all the texts that had names or many of the texts that had names attached to them were by men. So it was assumed that anonymous texts were by men as well. And that's not the case. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the, the old adage that anonymous was a woman, I think does hold true here, um, that we, we mustn't uh, discount that. And particularly in certain areas. So for example, in folk healing, in medicine, if you didn't have the money to um, or chose not to uh, consult a qualified university trained physician, the chances are that you would go and be treated by uh, a woman, uh, a female folk healer, particularly, of course, midwives. Um, the, the profession of midwife was, a, was one that was almost always carried out by women um, and childbirth, clearly a very uh, dangerous uh, procedure um, in the Middle Ages um, and right up to today, I suppose. Um, uh, was something that was overseen by women. Um, uh, and also we have cases, I talked about monks, but of course there are nuns as well practicing science. Um, I mentioned in the book, uh, the, um, uh, the, um, Hortus Deliciarum, the Garden of Delights, um, by uh, Herod of Hohenburg, uh, an abbess in Alsace on the borders of France and Germany, um, who uh, produced this kind of 
uh, guide to the liberal arts for the nuns in her abbey. And it's full of really interesting science, uh, the kind of range of, of liberal arts studies um, and the calendrical sciences and so on, all the sciences that would be useful to a nun uh, in the abbey in the 12th century. Um, so there are absolutely cases, um, uh, Hildegard of Bingen, of course, is a very famous one, uh, of women being involved in scientific study. Um, but of course, they were not um, generally allowed access to the places where science was being practiced, like the universities. And now coming on to the present day, do you think that at some point in the future, our own scientific knowledge might perhaps be disparaged in the way medieval knowledge is nowadays? Absolutely. Thank you for asking that. Um the uh, one of the problems that I identified with disparaging medieval scientific knowledge is it's a way of making ourselves feel good. It's a way of saying we're not as stupid as them. Um, and that's, that's always been the case. Um, people have always defined themselves against uh, people, often people in the past, that they thought were stupid or whose ideas uh, they can dismiss easily. Um, and this is a tremendous problem for us today, because if we um, think of ourselves as having understood everything, then we lose the ability to question, we lose the ability to identify when we're doing things wrong, we lose the ability to improve our ways of studying science. And you see that, of course, in today's politics, um, when politicians um, are constantly emphasising how they're following the science, uh, or being led by the science. Uh, and that sounds great. But of course, there is no one science, science proceeds through debate. And if we had understood everything in science, then scientists could have given up and gone home a long time ago. Science is constantly developing, it's constantly progressing. Um, and so what we have to understand is that sometimes that line of progress, that line of development uh, takes a wiggle, takes a bump, goes down a dead end. Um, and it's really important to see that that's just a normal part of the development of science. Um, and uh, that uh, there may well be things in today's uh, science uh, that future generations say, oh my God, what were they thinking? Uh, I say may well, there will certainly be things in today's science that future generations will uh, laugh at or will um, say, thank God we're no, no longer so stupid as they were back then. Uh, and so I think studying the science of the Middle Ages, apart from uh, recognising their achievements, also helps us see that, you know, where we might now say they were wrong, we can notice if we study that they may have been wrong, but they were wrong for the right reasons. Uh, and that these were deeply intelligent people. These weren't stupid people. Um, and, uh, and so if they were wrong, we have to say, well, how uh, can people be wrong about things for a long period of time? How uh, does science uh, support uh, incorrect ideas? Uh, and we can look at that and we can learn something about the way uh, that science is uh, done today. Okay, um, Seb, I think I've been through all the questions that I was planning to ask you. Is there anything you think that I really should have asked you about that I didn't? I, I have already said this, but uh, what I really want to emphasise about medieval science is how ingenious it is and how creative it is. Uh, you know, I'm sitting here with these beautiful uh, replica, I should say, astrolabes next to me, uh, which are um, a sign of the medieval idea that you can... Um, encapsulate the universe in an instrument that can fit into the palm of your hand. 
uh, and you can use that to model the motions of the most distant objects in the heavens. Um, but also you can do that in a tremendously creative um, and artistic way. Uh, and the way that the Middle Ages combined art and science, ideas and physical objects, writings and diagrams and mathematical tables is hugely ingenious, is hugely creative. Uh, and, and the creativity of the Middle Ages, um, something that's so often disparaged, uh, was something that I really wanted to emphasise in my book. Uh, and that's why I included poetry in five different languages uh, to show how right across uh, the world people are inspired by science in the Middle Ages. You know, you get poems in Arabic about this wonderful observatory that's being founded uh, at Maraga. You get um, poems, uh, Chaucer writing in Middle English, um, uh, talking about the learning of the physicians and, and all of their wide reading and their studies. Um, and, and of course, incorporating a huge amount of astronomy and astrology into his poetry as well. So it's this idea that science is such a deeply creative endeavour and one that um, runs right through medieval culture, uh, which I wanted um, to emphasise. And, and really just to show how, um, how medieval people were so curious and so interested and so um, keen to work out uh, things above their heads from what they could observe down here below. Uh, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book um, is the most popular medieval textbook, um, The Sphere by John of Sacrobosco, a mysterious person that we know very little about, but uh, was supposedly English, but taught in Paris. Um, and he explains uh, not only how to prove that the Earth is round, because, of course, uh, no serious scholar in the Middle Ages believed the Earth was flat. That's a modern myth. Um, he, he explained also how to calculate the size of the Earth using geometry. And that was a method, of course, that goes back to the ancient Greeks. Um, but it's this idea that medieval people are really curious about the world around them and want to uh, understand as much as they possibly can, uh, and then, as I say, want to model uh, that science through the creative instruments that they invent in order to show that off. That was Seb Fork. The Light Ages, A Medieval Journey of Discovery, is out now, published by Alan Lane. And you can read a version of this interview, which originally appeared in our November issue, at historyextra.com. Just go there and search for Seb Fork. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Margaret Macmillan about her new book, War, How Conflict Shaped Us. Us.